Hey, but right now we're going to take a little break from Dave Ramsey and get into a little sports talk because it's Thursday night just after 8 o'clock. Ronnie O and Coach Joe are in the Ozone. The Ozone. The Ozone is brought to you by Allied Scrap Processors. They turn scrap metal into cash. All right, Ronnie O and Coach Joe in the Ozone. Give us a call, 682-1430. That's 682-1430. If you're technologically inclined, you can reach us at ozone at hallradio.net. Well, today we learned that a sports icon, voice of the Florida Gators, Mick Hubert, will be retiring after the Florida-South Carolina baseball series this weekend. And uh, we've got one of his classic calls against Tennessee. Oh, here we go. We've got the classic call from Mick Hubert, the 63-yard touchdown pass to Antonio Callaway that beat Tennessee with no time left on the clock. The Gators are four for four on fourth downs. Snap to Greer. Greer looking, looking, looking. Throws the ball. Got a receiver. There's a catch made on the near sideline. Down the right side, 35-30. It'll be Callaway down the sideline. He's going to score. He's going to score. He's going to score. It's a touchdown. Oh, my. Oh, my. Antonio Callaway, 63-yard touchdown. And the ball game is tied. I just saw magic. Wow, what a call. And uh, Mick Hubert is the only sports broadcaster in college football history to have broadcast for one school championships in football, basketball, and baseball. He's amazing to listen to. It's uh, one of the fun things for me to do, and I guess we're not going to get to do it anymore, is you know when a game is on television, uh, it's to get his call on the radio and turn down the sound and sync it up with the television pictures. And I do that a lot with basketball too. And it's, it's just so, so wonderful. He, he does calls better than I think anybody else. Cause he, he calls the game and you can tell whose side he's on, but he's not a cheerleader. I mean, he's a real pro and you know, his retirement sort of came out of nowhere. He just really announced it about, uh, it just came out now and he only talked about, doing it uh, within the last week or two, although there were signs of it because apparently they they are selling their house in Gainesville and they've got a place in Sarasota ready to retire to. And he's been there. It doesn't seem like it, but he has been there 33 years. Yeah, it's hard to believe it doesn't seem like that. And, of course, you've heard all of those games on WONN. We broadcast the Gator football and basketball. And, uh, you know, I, I had an opportunity. I was there for all of those championships in person and uh, just happened to go out to Omaha when when Florida got in there. I just had a feeling that they were going to do well out there. And, uh, man, that was so exciting. I uh, went out to Omaha, and I didn't have tickets. And I went over to the team hotel, and there were these ladies there with their sons, and they were going to the game. And I said, do you guys have an extra ticket? And they said, no, we don't. But see that guy sitting over there? He's the Florida ticket manager. So I go over there, and I bought tickets for each of the final games and I was sitting with the team and their, the team's parents, and it was so neat to go sit with them and then watch that unfold and see them claim the championship. It was really neat to be there in person. Oh, there's just so so many great memories. Uh, we, we just heard uh, the throw from 2016 from Will Greer to Antonio Callaway, which was uh, that amazing fourth down play against Tennessee. 
there was the other uh, buzzer beater against Tennessee uh, uh, in football. And then, of course, the Chioza three-pointer in, in the uh, Sweet 16 game against uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, it was. Yeah, that was in Madison Square Garden when he took it the length of the court and hit the three at the buzzer. That that It's one of those things, you know, Ronnie, a lot of times we're watching on television, but and we can do this nowadays with these smartphones, is you can go get the Gator broadcast just about wherever you are. And it's I know sometimes if I see something happen on TV and I don't happen to be listening to Mick, I go back, I want to hear Mick hear this. I hear, hear Mick's yeah. call on this. Because it's, it's really it made it extra special. The first time... When he said the Gators have won the national championship, that was at right as the uh, clock was ticking to zeros in New Orleans in January 1997 when we beat FSU 52 to 20. And it just, what was the score again? It was 52 to 20, I believe it was, Ronnie, it, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't want Scott to miss that. I know he loves to hear that. <laughs> uh, yeah, we chased him away now. <laughs> but but yeah, Mick was an institution. He, he, you know, Otis Boggs was the longtime voice of the Gators. And then in the 80s, David Steele, I remember him very well. And he went on to become the magic announcer. Yeah, I and never then, cared for him as a Gators announcer. Uh, you know, he was a University of Georgia graduate. And I never saw him wear Gator stuff. And, you know, I don't believe that stuff. When, when you're employed by the university, don't try to be unbiased. They write your paycheck. You're biased. <laughs> well, I remember I remember him doing a lot of basketball, and he was good to listen to then. Uh, I think football, uh, it, Mick was was always a lot better at football. But David Steele as a basketball announcer is terrific, though. And uh, and Mick was a great basketball announcer. You know, the, uh, gosh, has it really been that long since the first Final Four team in 1994 with Lon Kruger yeah. and Demet Hook and Andrew DeClerc yeah. of the court? <laughs> And that that great time in Miami Arena, you know, I found a, a local Daniel station. Daniel Marshall, yeah, you know, I found a local station to hear to hear what he had to say after those games because I was down there watching that incredible run to the Final Four by that group of Gators. Uh, it's uh, you, you know, you think of all the way the Gators have had such success in the '90s and and on. So much of what we talk about, and and Mick's been there to call it all. It's it's I'm not going to know what to do when when he's not calling the games this fall. Yeah, that's true. And um, I tell you what, parents, you know, you often hear, tell your kids to get away from the radio. This is not going to be good. You don't want them to hear it. You want them to hear this. Our interview coming up is with a former Gator player named Dan Plonk. And Dan was an offensive lineman out of Merritt Island that played for the Gators in the 80s. But he also became a mechanical engineer. So he is a real student, and I say student first, athlete, So you don't want to miss that. You're listening to Ronnie O and Coach Joe on Talk Radio 96.7 WLKF. Hello, this is David Bowden, former Kathleen Red Devil and Florida Gator, and you're listening to Ronnie O in the Ozone. Hey, we've got Ronnie O and Coach Joe in the Ozone. The Ozone is brought to you tonight and every Thursday by Allied Scrap Processors. All right, Ronnie O and Coach Joe back in the Ozone. And with us on the phone is Dan Plonk, former Gator offensive lineman and a tremendous student at the University of Florida. Dan, welcome to the Ozone with Ronnie O and Coach Joe. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's good, good to be back. Dan, um, you know, we, we hear, I've heard so many times the phrase big dumb lineman, but it's been my experience that the offensive linemen are often the best students on a football team. Did you find that to be true? 
I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, the, I think the smartest guys or players on the field are probably uh, offensive linemen and, and uh, the quarterback, I would imagine. Dan, you – Of course, I'm biased. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you not only had an opportunity to play football, but you used that scholarship wisely and became a mechanical engineer. Tell us – give us a, an idea of what your typical day was like when you had football practice and some obviously very challenging courses in the classroom. Uh, uh, it, it was um... – I, of course, it took me a few semesters to learn to learn it. Uh, actually, we were on quarters back when I was at UF, and then we flipped the semesters. Uh, I I would uh, I'm an early morning person, but I realized you know what you shouldn't schedule classes too early in the morning if you're going to stay up till one a.m. studying. <laughs> so so I eventually evolved, and uh, I even tried on some days if I could get class back after 10 or 11, that would be good too. So that, I did that to help myself out so I could sleep in just a little bit. <laughs> well, you played high school football over on the Space Coast, and back in those days there were some great football played over there with your Merritt Island Mustangs of Jerry Odom and then the Titusville Astronaut crew that had Chris Collinsworth and Wilbur Marshall. Talk about some of those high school games that you guys had over there. Oh, yes. Uh, let's see that. Uh, of course, I remember I was a 10th grader starting as a defensive lineman. I played defensive line my first two years, 10th and 11th grade. And we, Chris was a senior at Astronaut. And uh, we were up there in Titusville. And uh, uh, it was, man, the atmosphere was just unbelievable. I got to <laughs> tackle Chris a few times. And we, we prevailed. I think it was 17 to nothing, if I remember correctly. Wow. That that must have so, that must have been some great memories. So you got to Gainesville, I think, in nineteen seventy nine. No, that's that's when I that's when I graduated was nineteen seventy nine. Yes, sir. Yeah. And that's when I came to UF. Yeah, I I, uh, I got there in nineteen eighty one, and uh, I, it was all semesters by then. I had forgotten about the part where they switched from quarters. I always wondered what yeah. that was like to have just uh, nine weeks at a time. Seem, to me, it seems like it would be awesome. I don't know, maybe maybe because I didn't get to do it. Which did you like better? Uh, I think I ended up liking semesters better. Okay. You know, it was you know instead of three classes in the year, let's say, it would be two classes. I mean, it, instead of ten weeks, it'd be sixteen weeks, of course. So it's it was really the same amount of time. Um, it's just uh, you didn't have to restart and then. Uh, with a new class every ten weeks, so I, I did like semesters better. Did it work? Did it help you uh, learn thermodynamics by having more time? <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, hey, hey, I'll tell you a good story. My professor's name was Gator. G A T E R. I think I heard of that guy. I didn't do engineering, but I think I've heard of him. <laughs> yes, and he taught thermodynamics. As a matter of fact, he was a he was a very good professor, and you know he was one of the. There were a couple of professors that kind of toughened me up and got me in the right uh, gear on studying and uh, playing football, and he he was one of them. Our guest, Dan Plunk, uh, former Gator lineman, 1979 through 1983, uh, which is a great time to be in Gainesville, by the way. <laughs> hey, join us. Uh, let's talk to Dan, 682-1430, 682-1430. Dan, what got you into engineering? What led you down that path? Uh, that's... 
Uh, that's a good question. Of course, being from the Space Coast, uh, there was a lot of that engineering stuff going on. Uh, I was really good at math, uh, really good at science. Uh, I mean, I guess I was really, really good at all subjects, but those were my favorites. Um, I had some really good science teachers, chemistry and physics. Uh, Mr. Marks was my physics teacher. And then uh, Mrs. Loudon, my calculus teacher, she was actually a mechanical engineer and a computer science uh, grad from MIT. <laughs> so <laughs> I, had, I had some smoking awesome teachers there at Merritt Island. Boy, you did. Dan, you uh, blocked for a, a kid from Lakeland. Uh, Wayne Peace, who's a good friend of ours, and uh, back in, I guess it was 82, when, when there was somewhat of a controversy between him and Bob Huco, and uh, they went back and forth. What was that like going from a left-handed quarterback to a right-handed quarterback? How, did that affect you as a lineman? Uh, no, not really. I mean, seeing somebody throw the ball left-handed was uh, unusual because I was super right-handed. <laughs> and. <laughs> And uh, you know they were they were they were different quarterbacks. I loved playing with both of them. As a matter of fact, I remember after Wayne signed, I went over there and visited him when he was playing basketball. You know, towards the end of oh, his yeah. high school, and I went over there and watched one of the games uh, and got to speak with him there. So I, I guess in a way, I, I helped recruit Wayne just a little bit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Was your last game the '83 Gator Bowl against Iowa? It was it was the eighty two blue bonnet. Oh no! Yeah, I have a story on that. You know that game was not broadcast live, and I was with some friends in Jacksonville, and we were watching the delayed broadcast on television. We didn't know what the score was, and you guys were up early, and uh, for some reason, the idiots that we were, we went out and started listening on the radio in the car and realized we had lost. I think Gary Anderson went wild against us, if I remember right. What do you remember about that game? Uh, it, well, it was a disappointment, uh, for sure, because that was last game, the last game. Um, you know, I don't – I'm a little foggy on that one. I do remember – one thing that I remember the most, of course, this is a personal thing. <laughs> My dad was all in on me playing, and he came out there for that game. And – uh he came to a lot of my uh, tons of my games, or almost all of my games, actually, no matter where they were. And that's the one thing I remember. Plus, it was a, a little bit of the, I guess, sorrow of it being over with. So that that was probably uh, meaning playing football at UF. Uh, that's probably what I remember the most. Is there one particular game or a particular opponent that stands out in your mind? Uh. Well, of course, um, let's see. I, I, I did uh, win offensive player of the game three times. And uh, I played offensive tackle, actually, one year. In, in terms of, uh, I guess, an opponent, of course, it was Florida State. Um, you know, they, of course, they recruited me. Coach Baum was a good guy. Um, but, uh, you know, there was there was a lot of, you know, I mean, Miami, hey, that was a pretty good rivalry, but nothing compared to, to Florida State. I mean, Georgia was a great rivalry as well. That was a big game. But there was just something special about Florida Florida State. I mean, some of my teammates went to Florida State. Some of the guys that I played against the astronaut, they went to Florida State. So you had that kind of bond and 
rivalry thing significantly in that in that with that team. Any particular individual opponent you remember blocking? Um, let's see. Uh, well, of course, Ron Simmons. Oh yeah, uh, I got to block him as a freshman. Oh and, man! And uh, I mean, I actually, I was a, I was a good pass blocker. I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you. Uh, he, uh, and you know, he was, but he was a rocket. Plus, he bench pressed about 500 pounds. <laughs> and um, you know, he was he was tough to block, but I I did a pretty good job of blocking. Back then, uh, you guys were living in Yon Hall, if I remember right. Is that the case? We, we should. We sure were. What was that place like? Because I used to walk by it. I always wondered to myself, you know, Joe, what, I wonder what that place is like. Um, it was, well, it was extremely convenient. Uh, yeah, yeah. That. So for our listeners, I it mean, was built into the stadium. Right, over on the east side of the stadium there. Uh, I had I had, I had a really good time in there. We used we did crazy stuff in there. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we get those big old heavy plastic garbage, 55 a gallon garbage cans, and I'd get my bow out, and I'd shoot, I'd shoot the bow down the hallway. <laughs> and, what could go and, wrong there? Uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, we, we were, uh, I guess you could say dangerous, to say the least. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it was, the convenience of it was just outstanding. Uh, but but in reality, it was it was you know when they later put the guys out into regular dormitories and mixed them with the students, uh, that that was that was probably a better way to do it. Now, I, I, when I went to Georgia Tech, a graduate school, I got in a dormitory with regular students, and I thoroughly enjoyed being part of the student body. Which, of course, we didn't really have that at UF. Yeah, yeah. What, what, what was? You know, I was wondering as an offensive lineman, what was it like to block for James Jones? Oh, uh, well, uh, he, of course, he was outstanding. Yeah, and, he, he uh, was pretty tough, right? He, he could run over just about anybody, couldn't he? Y- yes, he was, and he was just a solid citizen to say the least. And he he was just a good guy, very mild mannered. Uh, he did not get all, you know, jacked up like some people would. He was very even killed, and I, and I love blocking for James. He was actually in my signing class. We came there the same year. Yeah, that was some amazing stuff. You know, the 79 season, everybody remembers, is 0-10-1. and There were a lot of great young right. players on that team. It started to show in 1980, and you sort of took Georgia by surprise. Was there a change in strategy heading into that game? In 1980. The Georgia game? Yeah, 1980. The Georgia game? Yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember. Uh, one thing I do remember, uh, they had really, uh, as far as a strategy. Um, Seems like you were passing I, more. Uh, well, we sure were. Uh, we, we had, and under Shanahan, Coach Shanahan, yeah. we, we went to more uh, passing, uh, uh, maybe even more passing than running. And, uh, it that that helped. Uh, you know, another neat thing they did. Uh, you may not remember this. They had some really huge defensive guards, and they had some really quick defensive ends. They actually flipped flipped the guards and the tackles. I actually played tackle, blocking. You know, the six foot four, two sixty guy. And oh, wow. uh, Joe 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 Wickline went to my position as guard. He was blocking. 
uh, I think it was one of the Weaver brothers. Who yeah, was Eddie Meek Cleaver Weaver from Haines City, Florida, down here in Polk Absolutely. County. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I played, I played, uh, we played Haines City my junior year at Merritt Island. Oh, wow. And, yes. And, uh, but he was, he was that 300 pound guy and Joe was blocking him and I was blocking <laughs> the guy who was more nimble. <laughs> As an offensive lineman, which did you prefer? The guy that would try to bull rush you or the guy that was quicker? Which one did you fare better against? Um, Probably, probably the quicker guy. Probably the quicker guy. I had really good feet, and uh, you know, I they uh, Coach King, who was our offensive line coach at the time, he did a nice job of teaching us to do drop back passing, and uh, you know, be, being able to be nimble and the guy trying to run around you and stuff like that. I matched up really well in that respect. Dan, we really appreciate you being with us tonight. You know, people like you that were great student athletes um, inspire the young kids that listen to our show, and uh, we certainly appreciate someone like yourself coming on with us and uh, can't thank you enough for your time. Well, well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, You know, what you you set yourself up for in college or even after high school if you do a trade – that's going to stay with you the rest of your life and, and making good decisions and picking out good careers is, is very important. So I appreciate you having me on to talk about that a little bit. You certainly did that, Dan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. You can have me back anytime. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Listen to Ronnie O and coach Joe on talk radio 96.7 WLKF. Ozone time. Ronnie Owen, Coach Joe talking sports in the Ozone, brought to you by Allied Scrap Processors, turning scrap metal into cash. All right, earlier this evening, Ronnie and Joe caught up with Holly Kane to talk some NASCAR. It's our distinct pleasure to have with us our NASCAR guru who knows all, sees all in NASCAR, Holly Kane. Holly, welcome to the Ozone with Ronnie Owen, Coach Joe. Thanks for having me. Wow, so glad to have you in. A big race out in Texas coming up this weekend. Uh, Mile-and-a-half Texas Speedway, but don't be fooled by that. It's one of the fastest non-restrictor plate races on the circuit. It really is, and and you know what? This will be the second time that Texas Motor Speedway has hosted the NASCAR All-Star Race. So, uh, you know, I think... With the new car and everything, there's a lot to be seen, and, and the drivers are, are pretty psyched up about it. You know, this is this track demands your attention. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Holly, give us the all-star race format. <laughs> All right. Uh, how quick would you like it? <laughs> <laughs> a Reader's Digest version. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you'll need. It's changed again. It's basically going to be four uh, different sections of it, and... The last part of it is going to be longer, 50 laps, and the winner of that wins a million dollars. So it's uh, quite a interesting way to the qualifying that they're going to have and then how they set up the final run for the checkered is based on how people do in the first three sections of it. And also there's a pit stop contest in the middle. So the, the lineup, the first two rows for that final sprint, is going to be decided based on how the cars did in the earlier portion. 
So the only people that understand this are Mensa people and Holly Kane, right? <laughs> well, the Mensa people anyway. No, I, I, I do understand it. I'm, I'm good with it. It's just, uh, you know, NASCAR, to their credit, is not afraid of changing things up, as we've all discussed. And they're, you know, this sounds to me, it sounds like it could be a, a very exciting thing. And it also forces drivers in the past when there have been multiple stages that, that used to kind of lay back because they would just invert the field. And this way you can't do that. you got to race hard all of the stages. So I, I think this is definitely going to guarantee that happens. Well, I think the Mensa people understand it because you explain it to them, Holly, so well. <laughs> Good one. Yes, we'll go with that. <laughs> you know, May is such a great month for racing, and we appreciate you actually joining us here tonight. I know you're you're very busy schedule. You've been in Miami. You're heading to Texas. You're going to go to Indy. But you know what I need to ask you first and foremost right off the top, don't you? Is this going to involve Joey Logano? <laughs> That extremely skilled and professional racing move that he had that William Byron just can't seem yeah. to get, get over. What's his problem? Well, <laughs> you know, I think that's going to depend on who you're talking to. Well, you're but, talking uh, to I, me, so let's, <laughs> so let's yeah, exactly. look at it in this frame. In your eyes, it was a skillful maneuver by Joey Logano to put William Byron in the wall and then go on and win the race. Um, William would, would beg to differ. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the interesting <laughs> thing is if – any, you know, any of the listeners follow Joey Logano, they know he is, you know, going to stand down. And that's exactly what he's doing. He felt like William Byron raced him hard, perhaps unfairly earlier in the race. And so William had it coming to him. And he said, furthermore, if William wants to try and uh, have a little retribution, Joey's ready to give it right back again. So he kind of laid it down that he's not going to move aside. And if he's got to race hard, he will. You have to remember that was his first race win of the season. So he uh, he had a lot of motivation. William has two already. Not that that means it's okay to race like that, but in his mind, he needed that win. Well, let me ask you about the etiquette of it for a second, Holly, the extent that there is a, a track etiquette. Because you and I were talking to Ross Chastain last month, and he had won the race at the Circuit of the Americas by bumping uh, A.J. Allmendinger right there in that last lap didn't seem like it was that different from what Joey did. Is there a difference? And how do the drivers view that sort of uh, action down the last lap? You know, it's interesting because I've been covering the sport, as we've talked about before, too, since the early 90s, since 1990. And back then there was this fellow named Dale Earnhardt. And if he <laughs> needed to get by you to win, you better be prepared to fend off his fenders. That's how they used to race. And there was a time where that was kind of, less acceptable but i really honestly believe it's kind of whose side you're on if you're a fan of one of the guys that do it you're okay with it if you're not if you're a fan of the one that got moved aside then you're not so happy with it so you know what that's part of racing and has always been a part of nascar so i think to a certain extent if you are door-to-door -door racing for the win you can kind of expect most times not always that you're going to have a little hard racing to deal with you know, I want to ask you for your thoughts about what happened in Miami with the Grand Prix, how it went, uh, how the track held up, the crowd, uh, and uh, whether or not you actually got to say hi to David Beckham. Well, I I didn't say hi to David Beckham. However, I was standing right next to him. Oh, So there was cool. that. There was that. But, you know, he was one of so many 
celebrities uh, that came out for the race. I saw Michael Douglas. I saw Serena Williams. I saw Michael Jordan, Tom Brady. There were so many that were there for the race. And so it really gave it just this huge feeling of this is a major event. And uh, it is a major event. So I thought that everything went really well. I thought the race was exciting. They had, you know, passed for the lead. There were uh, incidents, not that you have to have that to make it exciting, but things that happened throughout the race. Um, so I, I thought it was a great debut, and people were so pumped up for it. And uh, I, I don't know. I thought it was a, a really big success, and I think that the promoters do as well. There's some little things they want to fix. I think there was some issue with catering, and, uh, you know, I know they also want to hopefully have more people allowed to the next uh, Miami Grand Prix. They want to try and have it closer to 100,000 people trackside on race day. I think it was closer to about 80, 85 this year. And did Holly Kane have to sign a lot of autographs for those B-listers? <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly enough, no. <laughs> but they, they generally uh, like the layout of the course? They generally did. Now, you know, because it's a first-time event, they, you know, there's going to be people that like this, didn't like that. But it was interesting. I spoke with the, uh, the the promoter, the organizer of the Grand Prix, Tom Garfinkel, and he was explaining to us that there were certain things that they had to have the way they did based on the structure. I mean, at one point, the course goes underneath the turnpike. So there's certain things that had to be designed based on that. But I think they're very open to uh, changing it up and, and taking the driver's suggestions and hearing what they had to say. You know, it's again, it's a first year event and they want to make it as great by the drivers as they do by the fans. So I think we'll see a little tweaking to it for next year. Well, you know, it's Miami. So I think that's a, uh, one lap penalty if you use your uh, turning signal, so <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> I I don't know. I didn't see a lot of turning signals down there. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, well, Max Verstappen was your winner, and then Charles Leclerc was second. Uh, you know, there's not names we talk about a lot in because we don't talk a lot about the Grand Prix and the Formula One circuit, Holly. But what can you tell us about those guys? Well, first of all, they're young, great racers and the great thing about max and charles is they have been racing together since they were in go-karts when they were 10 11 12 years old and and in fact you can go on youtube and find some old videos there's a classic one i wrote about where they they had an incident on track and they were mad at each other and it was kind of interesting because they had to have been 11 12 years old and max got out and he was very angry about it and charles got out and he was kind of like yeah we we had an incident and the reason I bring this up is that's still kind of their personalities today. And you can really see it when they race. But Max is the reigning world champion. He won the race, and he's uh, right on Charles Leclerc's footsteps to uh, try and reclaim the championship lead. But it's just fantastic racing, and there's so many young talents on the grid right now. Oh, and by the way, seven-time champion Lewis Hamilton is trying to make history and win his eighth. So, so much to watch. Holly, this all-star race is not a points race. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. So if you're a car owner, what is your strategy? I mean, you obviously want to win every time you go out there, but what, what are you telling your drivers? Well, obviously, like you said, they want to win, and it's a million dollars to win this one race. And it's a whole lot of publicity, and it's bragging rights. However, it will be interesting this year because we're still not totally – uh, in full supply of these next-gen cars, of the new cars for this year. So I will be interested to see. I don't 
seat. They want, I know they don't obviously don't want to have a lot of wrecks and a lot of torn up equipment in a race that doesn't deliver any points. So I think there's a tiny bit of that, but you know, it's so hard to tell a race car driver. Now, listen, drive carefully. Don't really go for the checkered, you know, that, that goes out the window. And the, the drivers love the fact that they get to race hard and it doesn't count against them in the championship. So a lot of times you see guys really going for it. And, and a lot of the type A personalities that manage to, uh, you know, restrain themselves when it comes to the end of a race and they're just trying to get points. They're going all out for the win in this. Holly, we're almost out of time. One last question. Who do you see this racetrack favoring this weekend? Well, I think a lot of the drivers that have done well, but you have to like Kyle Larson. I also think Kyle Busch is going to be somebody to watch. He's got four wins there more than anybody else. So I would say Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson, you can't go wrong with the Kyle. Holly, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you doing this for us. Thank you guys for having me on. You know I love doing it. Take care and have a great weekend. Thanks, All right. Holly. The great Holly Kane. This is Chris Richard, former Kathleen Red Devil and two-time national champion of the University of Florida Gators. You're listening to Ronnie Ocean in the Ozone. We are definitely headed somewhere. Ronnie O and Coach Joe in the Ozone. The Ozone is brought to you by Allied Scrap Processors, who turn scrap metal into cash. All right. I want to thank Frank Julia and the folks out there, Frank and Rose Julia at Allied Scrap, for their sponsorship. Frank and I and Rosie grew up on the same street in Lakeland about 100 years ago together and um, really appreciate their sponsorship. Well, I know you're hungry. You're thirsty. You cannot wait. So we are curing hunger one person at a time here in the Ozone, and it could be your night to take advantage of that. So if you haven't won in the last six months, give us a call at 682-1430. That's 682-1430. As we told you earlier, University of Florida's Voice of the Gators, Mick Hubert, is retiring after 33 years. What is his signature tagline? Is it, how about that? Holy cow, or oh my, 682-1430. That's 682-1430. If you know the answer and you haven't won in the last six months, you could go out to Miller's Lakeland Ale House located at 5650 South Florida Avenue. we got somebody that's really hungry and thirsty already. And they've got over 40 strategically located television sets. And uh, you can watch your favorite sporting event out there. They'll put it on for you. And they have drinking meal specials every night of the week, so you can take full advantage of those, and your $30 will go a long way. So, Clarkster, Steve, how are you tonight? Somebody's right on top of it, man. Man, I tell you what, you must be real hungry and thirsty. Well, I've heard Mick just a few times on the radio. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, my. That's exactly yeah, right. Sounds like that too. That's exactly right. You, you know, one of my favorite ones, and I don't know if I even ever heard him do it live, was um, Bob Prince with the Pirates back in the day. If the Pirates were down a run and they had, they were going to the bottom of the ninth, he'd say, "Well, the Pirates trail by one. They'll need a boop and a blast here in the ninth." <laughs> and uh, that used to be one of my favorite ones. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah, I remember Bob Prince and those home run calls. Kiss a goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> hurt my throat trying to do it. Like uh, <laughs> So, Steve, you've been out the alehouse to eat before? Miller's? Yeah. 
Yes, I actually went out there about a month ago, my wife and I did. It was very good. All right. Well, you can take her out there, and you don't even have to tell her about the $30. You can just say, honey, I want to treat you to dinner tonight. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, you say <laughs> hey to Jorge and to uh, Dax and uh, all the gang over there. They always take good care of us when we're there, which is quite often. <laughs> so do you listen to the oh, game? Y'all doing all right tonight? Yeah, yeah doing fantastic. Who was the guy you had in earlier? I caught Dan Plonk. Dan Plonk was an offensive lineman back in the Charlie Pell era back in the 80s. Um, Give him hell, Pell. There you go. There you go. Charlie be on the sideline smoking a cigarette, man. I know. He'd be like, God. Now you look back on that stuff. You know, of course, you used to go into restaurants. I went into. that one in Auburndale that had the good pies. I went there after a movie one night. I, everybody but me in there was smoking. Allen's? Was a, the Allen's clock. Catfish the House? Clock. Oh, the clock, oh, the yeah. Clock. Oh, my Lord. But that, you know, <laughs> times have changed when it comes to that now. But wow. I think, Alabama had, I think Alabama had a kicker several years ago that would, I mean, several years ago would smoke on the sideline. <laughs> he couldn't do that now. No, I think Bear Bryant did too. Oh, Bear probably did. Bear probably had some bourbon in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've been around long enough to remember them smoking in the dugout and baseball, and, and the golfers, they'd be out there, you know, they'd, they'd be smoking, they'd toss a cigarette aside, hit the shot, light up a, no, a new one. My favorite Bear Bryant story is, I don't know if this is true or not, but a friend of mine told me this, and he said that Alabama was getting killed by the end run in a particular football game, and Bear Bryant was really upset with the defensive end, and he grabbed one of the kids – off the bench, and he said, get in there for Tommy and stop that end run. He said, I'll try, Coach. He said, oh, sit down. Tommy's trying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you remember a guy named Carl Ellis. He worked at Badcock years ago. Kid Ellis? Carl Ellis. He was all SEC defensive end for Tennessee. Was he the the mayor of uh, Mulberry? He was at one time, Carl probably was. He did everything in Mulberry. But he would tell that you could go in his office on Monday morning. He'd be talking to somebody on the phone. He didn't have those. He'd have it on, you know, speakerphone. And some <laughs> old girl would say, Carl, somebody ran through the front of the store of the car. And you'd be talking uh, football. You know, he played against Namath and Steve Sloan and those guys. And and uh, you'd be talking about the game from the weekend. And he'd go, he'd go yeah, yeah. That girl <laughs> just keep right on talking about it. <laughs> Fire Carl. Yeah, we would love to talk to him, and we'd always say, "Carl, who is the greatest player?" And he'd say, "Bar none, it was Joe Willie Namath." <laughs> I used to love for him. He said they bring him. He was about six one and a half, probably weighed about one hundred ninety five in college. He said they'd bring him in every year, and he 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 played for Neyland, General Neyland. Yeah. They'd bring him in every year, and he said they'd and they'd be six four two forty eight defensive end. He said and they'd have another another freshman six five two forty. He said, but when the game was on the line, generally they'd say, "Ellis, get in the game." <laughs> oh, we were him that just because you could hear him tell those old stories. Man, oh, oh man, <laughs> that's awesome. Those kind of guys are the ones you love to sit around and hear him tell those old tales. Yeah. Uh, Some old girl, Carl, the store caught on fire, Sally. Oh, yeah, 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 and he just keep right on talking football. <laughs> Carl Kid Ellis. Yeah. Carl Kid Ellis. Yep. 
Yeah, he was a real icon down there in Mulberry. Oh, he was. He was something else. I think he Love was mayor for about 110 years, wasn't he? Probably. Well, him or his dad won. Yeah. <laughs> I think his dad was Kid, El- Kid Ellis. Oh, his dad was Kid Ellis. Okay. Yeah. He told us about some old uh, General Nealon retired his after his sophomore year. And he said, yeah, we was out there practicing. He said General Nealon pulled up and had a little chain across the thing where he couldn't get in. He tooted the horn and tooted the horn the second time, and he said the manager didn't go any time. He just backed up and ran right through the chain. <laughs> <laughs> you could just sit there. You could sit there. Literally, you didn't, but you could sit there for hours and listen to him tell his old stories. God, it was Oh, I'm sure. I don't know if you remember this, but the Gators actually beat Alabama and Tuscaloosa with Namath in 1963. And, 1963, uh, like 17-14 or something? Ten to six, I think it was. The, uh, okay. the Gators had a kid from Fort Lauderdale named Dick Kirk. He was number forty-two, and he ran forty-two yards for a touchdown. And wow. uh, the Gators beat him. And the next year, they had a sophomore quarterback by the name of Steve Spurrier. And for some reason, you know, Alabama they ruled the SEC then, just like they do now. We had to play them back to back up there for some reason. And um, the Gators. We're driving down. I think we were down 17-14 or something like that. I don't remember the score of that game. And Steve thought we were on the goal line and we were on the 10-yard line, and they screwed up and they ended up not, not getting the field goal. They ran the field goal kicker on a guy named Jimmy Hall, who was a uh-huh. backup quarterback, and they missed the field goal that I think would have tied it. But um, they could have beaten them back-to-back. And, you know, Alabama did not lose another game in Tuscaloosa until 1982. But that, that's kind of that. a bogus Yeah, yeah, because they thing played because, both of them in Legion Field. That's right. They, they played the tough teams in Legion Field because it was yeah. a bigger stadium then. Yeah. Um, I'm, a friend of mine was a big Gator fan. I'm an Alabama fan. So it's kind of easy to talk about Alabama. A friend of mine was a big Gator fan. He said it rained all day on Saturday. He went up for the game and he said, we got them, man. We got them. And because uh, it would make the field real sloshy and all. <laughs> he said, we went out there and he said, we got up in the stands about an hour early. I'm Maybe sorry, we're almost out of time. Um, go ahead and hang hang on. I'm sorry, we don't have time. We only got about all 10 right. seconds. Hang on the line. Eric will get your information and you can go out to the alehouse and eat and drink. Phone us. Good job, Thanks Steve. for listening. <laughs>